0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, Daniel chapter 7, continued. Today's going to be one of those lessons that's going to require all of your focus and attention. I promise you. It's going to be one of the more challenging ones you'll ever hear from me. But it's also going to be rewarding if you'll work at it a little bit. Now I'm going to begin with quoting a person whose work I've really come to admire. Quote, The theology in the Gospels of the New Testament far from being a radical innovation within Israelite religious tradition is actually a highly conservative return to the very most ancient moments within that tradition, moments that had been largely suppressed, but not entirely. See, these are words, I'd call it a startling admission, from one of the acknowledged greatest living Talmud and Torah scholars Daniel Boyerine and frankly these are words that need to be spoken by our Christian leaders to the church in general taken to heart because it it tells the truth that Christianity as it was in its earliest stages after Christ's death was a 100% Hebrew based religion so While I can't speak for all Hebrew roots pastors and teachers and rabbis, I can say for myself that taking a Hebrew roots approach to practicing our faith is anything but radical or heretical. Rather, it's nothing more nor less than a conservative return to our fundamental Christian faith roots, which, as it turns out, are decidedly Hebrew. And as Boyerine boldly comments that Judaism has intentionally suppressed the knowledge of ancient Israelite scriptural tradition that actually has much commonality with the theology of the New Testament, so has Christianity tended to suppress the same knowledge because of a desire to be separate, to be unaffiliated with any element of Jewishness or Judaism our Hebrew beginnings that are recorded in the Hebrew Bible is a heritage that many within the Institute within institutional Christianity have for over 1800 years sought to disavow to one extent or another professor Boyerine teaches at Cal Berkeley of all places. He's not a believer in Christ as the Jewish Messiah so far as he's publicly stated but he is a Jew who believes in the God of Israel he has quite an open mind towards the Bible and even towards the New Testament I'm in debt to him for so much fine research work regarding what we're going to be discussing today his research and study has led to many um, commonly held Christian and Jewish rabbinical sayings, customs, seemingly immutable cultural beliefs. He's exposed them by holding them up to the light of day. And he's shown that it's far past time that Jews and Christians roll back our thick doctrinal veils and rediscover the true beginnings of Christianity and where its fundamental theology came from. And when that happens, it's straightforward and it's obvious that the earliest belief in Yeshua as God's Messiah was born within a branch of Judaism and then another branch of it grew into Gentile Christianity largely through the tireless efforts of the Apostle Paul. And then Christianity itself has since morphed and divided and evolved into what we practice today in all of its various forms in our houses of worship around the globe. Now I mentioned at our last meeting that this week we learn that certain fundamentals of Christianity that have typically been taken for granted by Jew and Christian alike as exclusive innovations of a Gentile-led church that are quite apart from Judaism are in many cases present in Jewish thought beginning long before Yeshua was born. See, the irony of this is that theological concepts like the Trinity and a Messiah that is divine, not merely just a good man, which the church happily agrees belongs only to the church but which Judaism for centuries has said is blasphemous to God offensive to Jewish sensibility is in reality found in the Talmud also it's found in some other Jewish documents some of which were written prior to the New Testament And while we won't get into many of those theological concepts today, there is one that is most pertinent to our study of Daniel, so it's the one we're going to focus on. The Son of Man. The concept of the Son of Man. Now this study is going to lead us to a couple of other fundamental Christian theological principles that it turns out weren't new Christian inventions at all, but rather were mainstream Jewish thought at one time. Now our current study in the book of Daniel chapter 7 is indeed turning out to be the can of worms I promised you it would be. But it's also one of the most critical studies we'll have because it will go a long way towards determining if the New Testament is worth the paper it's written upon or even if Jesus is the Messiah that he claims to be. See, that might sound a little bit overboard, but as I've shown you in earlier lessons and as you're going to see further evidence of today, if Daniel's a hoax, then the New Testament has very serious credibility issues. The reason that most of us have never even considered the centrality of the book of Daniel to our faith is because modern Western Christianity mainly is interested in Daniel for its end times connections to the book of Revelation. Nebuchadnezzar's statue, Daniel's four beasts, the little horn with the blasphemous mouth. These are what interest modern Christian pastors and scholars and teachers, especially novelists. So this is mostly what church authorities and what lay people know of the book. Our extensive look today into the study of the concept of the Son of Man is going to help you understand just how critical it is that Daniel is real and truthful and what fatal damage it does to the Gospels. If indeed this book is what much of modern Bible academia says it is, a well-meaning fraud that was written over 300 years after it purported to be and means something else entirely than what it seems to be saying. So let's reread just a few verses of Daniel chapter 7 to get started today. We're going to read verses 9 through 14, and you'll pay, find that on page 1109 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Verses 9 through 14. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the ancient one took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire a stream of fire flowed from his presence thousands, thousands ministered to him millions and millions stood before him then the court was convened and the books were opened and I kept watching then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking I watched as the animal was killed its body was destroyed it was given over to be burned up completely now as for the other animals their rulership was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a time and a season I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. And he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. To him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never pass be destroyed. Now I mentioned last time that the theological concept of the Son of Man was slowly developed throughout the the, uh, Old Testament, and that at first the concept was virtually indistinguishable from the term human being. The Hebrew words are ben adam for son of man and we really don't find those Hebrew words used in the Bible to mean something other than a mortal person, a human being until the Psalms. And I use Psalm 80 specifically to highlight the term son of man. In Psalm 80, ben adam implies something more than merely a human but what exactly it implies remains shrouded in mystery for a few hundred more years I think the best way to take you on this important exploration of the Son of Man is to begin with the conclusion and the conclusion is this the Son of Man means the opposite of what it sounds like over 80 times In the New Testament, either Christ refers to himself or his disciples refer to him as the Son of Man. And typically, Christianity has taught what on the surface seems obvious. The Son of Man refers to Christ's humanity. But this leads us to another title and theological concept attributed to Yeshua in the New Testament, the Son of God. And interestingly we find that the concept of someone being called god's son occurred hundreds of years before christ and wasn't always referring to christ prophetically and in fact usually wasn't even suggesting that the person being referred to was divine or godlike in nature so i'm telling you that in the new testament that the term son of man is meant to speak of the divine nature of Yeshua, not as humanity. And the term the Son of God was, at first, meant to speak of the human nature with no divine quality whatsoever intended. However, that certainly changed as the New Testament developed. Now, why is this important? Why is this not just some head-hurting, onion-slicing academic exercise? it's going to help us to far better understand the life and times of Yeshua. And it's going to reveal how he thought of himself, how others of Jewish society in his day viewed him. And this as opposed to many assumptions that we've all made about that subject as we've read those inspired words of the New Testament. So buckle in. We're going to tackle this matter head on. To begin, we need to examine a word used regularly in Christianity, Messiah. In Hebrew, the term is Mashiach. The direct Greek translation of this word is Christos. And thus, from the Greek, we get the English, Christ. Messiah is just an English-sized way of saying Mashiach. So Messiah, Christos, Christ, Messiah, all mean the same thing. I don't have to work very hard to prove that, because the Apostle John tells us that this is the case. In John 141, he says, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, "We found the Messiah, which means the Christ." See, the thing is that although Christians automatically assume that a biblical Messiah must have a divine nature, in fact, the term Messiah has no such meaning at all. All the kings of Israel were called Messiah, Mashiach, all of them. Because what the word really means is anointed one. And all the kings of Israel were anointed with oil at their coronation. And the anointing with oil was meant to symbolize God anointing or electing and setting apart a person for a task. In this case, the task was being the earthly king over God's kingdom. And we find that King Saul was anointed with oil as found in Samuel 10. And it's also specifically said in the Bible that David, Solomon, Jehu, Joash, and uh, Jehoiahaz were all anointed with oil, thus making them anointed ones. Mashiach. And we can safely assume that the other Israelite kings listed in the Bible were anointed with oil, because that was just an undisputed custom. Therefore, an Israelite king in the Bible is typically referred to as the Anointed One of Yehoveh, or in Hebrew, the Mashiach of Yehoveh. The idea is to confer a very close and intimate connection between Israel's human king and the God of Israel. But in no way did that term intend to convey the idea that any of those several human Israelite kings were given a divine nature. So the term Messiah, Mashiach, translated to Christos and Christ, was generally indicative of any and every king of Israel and or Judah, nothing more and nothing less. Now it was also believed that the Lord essentially adopted each Israelite king as his own son, mostly from a spiritual viewpoint, but in a very real way nonetheless. We get a straightforward example of this adoption, as God spoke to David about the issue of David not being allowed to construct a temple for the Lord, but that his son Solomon would. In First Chronicles twenty eight six we read, Moreover, he, God, said to me, Shlomo, Solomon, your son, will build my house and courtyards, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. So the idea of a king of Israel being God's adopted son, a son of God, was at this point in history merely establishing an unusually tight bond between the earthly, entirely human, ruling king of Israel and God Almighty. The king was not divine, he wasn't God, but he was raised up by God given special attention, wisdom, and protection. And this adoptive father-son relationship between the God of Israel and an Israelite king generally applied to all of Israel's and Judah's kings. Now the next thing to understand is that despite the Lord establishing this father-son adoptive relationship with all of Israel's kings, He decided to give Israel's throne over to King David forever. And that royal line of his would come through his son Solomon's line, meaning, of course, that some descendant or another of David's royal line would continue to rule one after the next in perpetuity. This was established as a concrete promise from God to David. And essentially, it's a divine promise to the Jewish people as well. And we find statements to that effect in several places in the Bible. One notable example is in 2 Samuel 7. 12-14, 12-14, when your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you one of your own flesh and blood I will set up his rulership he'll build a house for my name I will establish his royal throne forever I'll be a father for him he'll be a son for me if something goes wrong uh, if he does something wrong I will punish him with a rod and a blows, just as everyone gets punished the particular son of David, the God chose to succeed him was Solomon, and then a long line of kings over Israel and Judah came from Solomon's line, just as promised. Thus, we have to grasp that in the Jewish mindset of that era, it was a foregone conclusion that beginning with King David carrying forward with Solomon all sons of God anointed kings of Israel would necessarily be from David and Solomon's dynasty but then catastrophe struck some three centuries after the death of King Solomon the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar attacked and he conquered Judah and he installed a king that he thought would be cooperative with him, Zedekiah Zedekiah eventually rebelled Zedekiah was captured his sons were killed he was blinded Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and the people of Judah were exiled to Babylon and the effect was that this ended not only a series of God's anointed ones Mashiach sitting on the throne of Israel but it also ended The promised dynastic line of King David, the sons of God. Even when the Jews were released from exile to come back home to Judah, follow me please, this gets overlooked. Even when the Jews were released from exile to come back home to Judah, there was no return of the Davidic dynasty to rule over them people prayed that God would forgive and in His mercy supernaturally find or create or even resurrect a formally uh, put it another way they would resurrect a king so that there could be a Davidic king over Judah but this hope for Davidic king was to be mortal Human, Just like all the ones that came before him. That's what they expected. But also understand, they knew it would be miraculous. It would have to be an act of God to bring this about because there seemed to be no one alive who could legally lay claim as a royal descendant of David that made him eligible to rule as a king over Israel. And since there was no Israelite kingdom, since Judah and all the promised land was under foreign rule, then the idea of a redeemer, a new King David who had a mysterious deliverer quality to him, not unlike Moses, well, that idea began to take hold among the Jews. This set the stage for the next part of God's redemptive plan. See, it's important to remember from the time the Jews went to Babylon until 1948 in our era the Jews were ruled by foreign Gentiles it doesn't matter that they came back to their own land it was only their own land and name only it was ruled by foreigners so taking all this into account that I presented to you this morning I know it's an awful lot I want to give you an example of how this knowledge changes our perspective in reading the New Testament as we see it from the Jewish worldview in which it was written. It's most likely that when in the New Testament where the opening words of Mark's gospel are the beginning of the good news of Yeshua the Messiah the Son of God that the term the Son of God is meant to communicate that Yeshua is that long-awaited-for Davidic king. It's not really meant to refer to Yeshua's divine nature at that point. That's not to say that Mark didn't think Yeshua was divine. It's only that the term the Son of God coupled with the term Messiah, Mashiach, had a long-established, well-understood, culturally-specific meaning to the Jewish people. It spoke of the Jews' breathless expectation for not just any Hebrew who might be king, but of a Davidic king to once again appear. So naturally... These culturally familiar terms are what Mark uses to convey to his Jewish readership that Yeshua of Nazareth is not only an anointed one, just another anointed Israelite king, but as son of God, he's from the line of David. Mark saved addressing the divine aspect of this new king for a little bit later in his gospel when Mark switches. He switches titles of Yeshua from the Son of God to the Son of Man. The term Son of Man was meant to say that Yeshua was not just a new and mortal King David, but he was also divine. And he is the one that the Jewish people had hoped for for so long. But where did this concept come from among the Jews? That the term the Son of Man, which had for centuries, and in the Torah just meant human being, now had a divine element to it. It was in the book of Daniel chapter 7. Let me repeat that. For the first time in the Bible, it was in the book of Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 that the Redeemer of the Jews that were up in Babylon, the one they'd hoped for, was given a formal title the Son of Man and it was introduced that he would have a divine nature. So with that as a foundation now let's talk directly about this Son of Man as described in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. In verse 13 keep it handy take a look at it In verse 13, notice that Daniel speaks of two distinct divine figures. The ancient one and the one like a son of man. The one like a son of man comes on clouds from heaven, we're told. And in verse 14, it says that the ancient one, who is God, is giving him rulership, glory, and a kingdom over all the inhabitants of the earth. Even more, this is an eternal rulership, we're told, that never passes away. And as if the sovereignty that never ends that is given to him isn't sufficient evidence, the coming on the clouds is the dead giveaway that this Son of Man figure is divine. Every other place in the Bible where heavenly clouds are associated with a being, the being is divine and not mortal. Now, I want to be very clear Daniel was given a divine prophetic vision that was of profound progressive revelation, it was earth shattering, it was history changing. He received a vision of a future divine Messiah, but he didn't realize it. A whole new theological concept was born here in Daniel in Israelite religious understanding, a theological concept that had been gestating in Hebrew culture for centuries. But had only at this moment reached a major milestone. The theological concept of a human appearing deity who is given the title of the Son of Man, who is directly associated with Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now, such a concept wouldn't have raised so much as an eyebrow among any Gentile because all Gentiles saw their gods and goddesses as human appearing deities. But the Israelites had spent centuries being punished in the most terrible ways by the God of Israel for harboring those kinds of thoughts because they always manifested themselves in idolatry. And now... And what Daniel knew for sure was a vision from God, God crosses over this this uncrossable line he seems to have set a long time ago. And as we read a little later in this chapter, starting at verse 15, Daniel knew what he saw, but he didn't know what it could mean. He couldn't wrap his mind around it, even when one of the holy servants of God in his vision told him what it meant. The whole thing seemed confusing, upsetting to him. In fact, even though he wasn't commanded by God to keep this vision to himself, Daniel didn't tell a soul. What would he say? How could he explain to other Jews, what made little sense to him. So in time, we're told, he simply wrote the vision down and he let it stand as the mystery that it was to him. So, Daniel's prophetic vision is of the divine anointed one, a king of Israel, a Mashiach, whom Daniel labels as the Son of Man whom we find out in the New Testament is none other than Yeshua of Nazareth and then Daniel gives us a number of attributes about him that will help us to identify him those attributes are he is human but he's also divine he'll come in the clouds he'll occupy a throne on high right next to Jehovah, the Ancient of Days, the Ancient One He has given all dominion over the entire planet, over everyone. In other words, the entire world's Gentiles, as well as Hebrews, which together make up 100% of the earth's population, will be his subjects. And of course, these attributes that we find in the Son of Man concept in Daniel chapter 7, we find in Jesus Christ. What we need to take special note of is the word like that Daniel uses in reference to the Son of Man. And we have in earlier verses of this chapter dealt with the four beasts of his vision of which one is like a lion, one is like a bear, and one is like a leopard. Thus these beasts embody attributes, characteristics of those commonly named wild animals but aren't fully or entirely those animals just merely like them so it is in that same context that we must consider Daniel's meaning of one like a son of man no doubt in Daniel's mind when he's saying one like a son of man he's mentally picturing one like a human being However, this human being in his vision is not fully or entirely a human being any more than were the lion bear and leopard. And what makes this human-like being so mysterious is that he also has a divine nature. He has an eternal nature. And he is so perfectly pure that he can be seated on a throne next to the God of Israel in heaven. Wow. So, this is why I can say here that the Son of Man becomes a specific title. For this mysterious being, even though Son of Man also retains a dual use in the Bible as a rather generic term for humans. It's not unlike when we speak of pagan gods little g gods and use the same word to speak of Jehovah God capital G God. We know from the context which is which and they're decidedly not the same thing. Now there's one other attribute of the Son of Man that Daniel speaks of that is controversial to say the least. At least how various folks have envisioned it and have attempted to illustrate it over the centuries is controversial. Many fine Bible academics and theologians, Jewish and Christian, starting 1800 and more years ago, see in Daniel's vision an older God and a separate younger one. Or as one academic put it, the Son of Man may very well be portrayed as a younger appearing divinity than the Ancient of Days. And if we take Daniel's vision in a fully literal sense, and the Son of Man we identify as the Divine Christ then indeed we have a literal older God alongside a literal younger God and they're two distinctively different beings. In fact, what we're approaching here is the very nature of Christ and of his essence and of his substance and of his connection with God. And there are many theologies about this matter. And the Trinity doctrine is just one of them. But even the Trinity doctrine is not a harmonized doctrine. There's a number of views of how the three members of the Trinity operate. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And generally, the variable among them is the degree of unity and that means of unification. For instance, some Christians say that Yeshua is God and His humanity is only an illusion. That is, He was a human appearing apparition just like an angel is at times portrayed in the Bible. Others say He was born a fully flesh and blood human and only later, probably upon His baptism, then He was transformed into a divine being. That is, it follows Greek mythology of a regular mortal human being made into a god by some other po- more powerful god. Other believers have said that he was f- fully human but the Holy Spirit that was in him manifested itself in a powerful way that no other human being before or since has experienced. However, all humans do have the same capabilities if only we're faithful enough. And these debates and more have raged since before the founding of the Roman Church. And as I brought up last week, whether it's realized or not, a goodly portion of the Church has allowed itself to incorporate the concept of separation of the younger Son of Man from the older Son. Ancient of Days, such that the Ancient of Days is the God of the Old Testament and the Younger Son of Man became the God of the New Testament. And this is reflected in a complete repudiation by some Christians of the characteristics of the Old Testament God because they say it involved rigid laws, bloody sacrifices, wrath, death and severity and this has all been replaced by the New Testament God whose characteristics are love, mercy, life and self-sacrifice and no particular rules or boundaries placed upon his worshippers. In fact, while depending on which of any of these interpretations of the nature and the substance of Christ that we might adhere to we tend to cast disapproving looks and silently think heretic at those Christians who see it differently than we do. But these are most difficult issues, and we're attempting to use finite human thought and physical earthly illustrations to gain gain some kind of understanding of God's nature, Christ's substance, how they can be separate in some ways and completely unified in other ways. And we have various scripture passages that characterize this relationship from different perspectives, so we need to tread lightly, I think, and not be overly judgmental about it, although there's boundaries, of course. Now I want to deal with one final matter today. It concerns the interpretation of Daniel's vision as given to this unidentified being who's standing near to the Ancient One Listen again to verses 21 and 22 in Daniel chapter 7. 21 and 22. And we'll also look at verse 27 in Daniel chapter 7. I watched and that horn made war with the holy ones and was winning until the Ancient One came. Judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High and the time came for the holy ones to take over the kingdom. Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven was given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All rulers will serve them and obey them. Here we find what seems to be a contradiction. In verse 14, the Son of Man is given the kingdom forever. Here, the holy ones of the Most High are given the kingdom and the rulership. It is from this that many Jewish rabbis and modern Judaism in general has determined that the Son of Man who comes on the clouds is the same as the Holy Ones who take over the Kingdom. And since from the Jewish perspective, the Holy Ones can be nothing else but Israel, then the Son of Man must also be Israel. And from a certain sense, they have a legitimate argument. However, one needs to approach this in reverse. By first asking, is Judaism actually saying that Israel is sitting at God's right hand in heaven and they're going to be coming on heavenly clouds? Yes, that's what they're saying. But that goes much too far, in my opinion and essentially makes Israel and Israelites divine. Now the question comes, so who are the holy ones then? And to that I think the rabbi's answer that the holy ones are Israel makes sense. This certainly can only be talking about the Hebrews recovering their God-given kingdom that was lost to pagan Gentiles. Nowhere have we ever found a hint in the Bible of referring to pagan Gentiles as God's holy ones. So all that's left is Israel. However, especially since this is speaking of an apocalyptic end-time scenario, then I also think we have to define Israel in the larger redemptive sense whereby Gentile believers are grafted into Israel's covenants according to Paul in Romans 11. And so believers are part of Israel from the spiritual redemptive perspective, but not in the fully physical sense of Gentile Christians suddenly becoming fleshly Jews or becoming naturalized, physical, political citizens of the modern state of Israel. Thus what I feel we have here is something that is rather typical when dealing with the Bible, and that is a duality, or as I've labeled it, the reality of duality. That is, there is a spiritual side and a physical side to all redemptive events in the seven biblical feasts, for example. And in the case of Daniel 7, I see the Son of Man coming in the clouds who rules over the kingdom as representing the spiritual side of the equation. And the Holy Ones who take over the kingdom as the physical side. In fact, the New Testament speaks of a dual rule of Christ and his believers when the kingdom of God is brought fully in. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, it says this, Here is a statement you can trust. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we persevere with Him, we will rule with Him. If we disown Him, He'll disown us. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. To him who wins the victory and who does what I want until the goal is reached, I'll give him authority over the nations. He will rule with an iron staff and dash them to pieces like pottery. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Don't you know that God's people are going to judge the universe? If you are going to judge the universe... Are you incompetent to judge these minor matters? Don't you know we will judge angels, not to mention affairs of everyday life? Daniel was given a vision of what these New Testament scriptures teach. But we weren't far enough along in redemption history in Daniel's day, for him to have a clue about it. We'll continue with Daniel chapter 7 next week.